This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code Geekery, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Talk to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. The 2016 ClojureCon will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st to the 3rd. ClojureCon is the original conference for Clojure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016.closure-conj.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lips, Clojure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at fngeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off ticket price. December 10th, FBI 2016 is held in Mixed. This year, the conference is focused on Scala, Clojure, Functional Approach in Kotlin, Reactive Programming on ClojureScript, PureScript, JavaScript, and TypeScript. Framework authors and active contributors to the technologies are among the speakers. Program and ticket information can be found on fby.by slash en. That's fby.by slash en. Closure D has been announced will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on the February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closurede.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F, De. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th of 2017. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountains for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destinations.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, 
please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Anthony Cipriano. Anthony, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm a programmer currently located in Germany, and my current project is Antlang, a programming language influenced by APL, K, and a bit of other functional languages you might know. And you came on my radar from some suggestions of some APL recommendations and getting out APL on the podcast. And so that was one of the things that put you on my radar. And so looking into Antling a little bit, I saw you were inspired by APL and K. And so I wanted to get you on to talk a little bit about Antling and the inspiration there and an APL style family. But figured we could also talk about a little bit of your other functional language background. So how did you get into functional software? Talking pre-call, you said functional programming was the main route that you came into, and that was your primary experience. So how did you get exposed to it, and what was your start with? Yes, the first programming language I learned was Prolog. It's a logical programming language, and that's a paradigm really much related to functional programming. And perhaps you know that Erlang is influenced by Prolog, so it isn't a big step between Prolog and Erlang, so it just was logical that I learned Erlang after that. And in Erlang, I also made my first experience with designing programming languages because I actually did one in Erlang. And so if you get exposed to Prolog, what was that exposure like? Was that a college course? Was that just something on your own? Or was that through some other career perspective where you were working and doing something other than software and you came across people who were doing Prolog? What was that little journey like that got you first exposed? I just wanted to know how to program computers. So I did a bit of research and looked for programming languages that I find appealing and I found Prolog there. And it is very, very easy to learn as a first programming language when you don't have the sort of expectations what a language should look like. Because many people find Prolog hard because it's a very different kind of language, but actually it isn't a different kind of language when you learn it at first. So I just wanted to program stuff And the first language I saw then was Prolog on my own. And so you pick up Prolog, you start getting in, and it said it's not weird or unfamiliar. What was that like if you're coming in and learning programming? Was that something that knowing from what I do about Prolog, but I haven't done a lot with it, you're setting up a bunch of these constraints and you're setting up a bunch of these rules that's going to follow. Is that something that kind of clicked with you naturally and it was natural versus just the difference in the syntax and not having any preconditions about what a programming language should look like? Well, the the connections you set up in Prolog are very natural when you get it easily explained because they are just, you know, you can explain to everybody that a connection between things is something that makes things related to each other. And then you can ask for what things are related and this is how you build programs in general using Prolog. So it's a very simple approach. You don't have you don't have arithmetic in it also. You don't have operators, functions, and all of that. It's just very, very basic. And if you learned it one time, it's very natural then. And what kind of stuff were you wanting to pick up and start learning and being able to program? If you're looking at programming languages to be able to take advantage of it, what was the kind of problems you were looking to tackle? 
Was it just I want to do a small little game or I just want to understand programming or I had a little problem I actually wanted to solve and knew that if I could program it, it would help me get it out of the way. See, whenever you have some sort of problem, not really a realistic one, but somewhere from the internet, it's just something, somebody saying, yeah, you could solve this using a programming language. And then I thought, okay, it's, it would be a nice idea to learn a programming language just to give the work to computers so that I don't have to do it. And it was like logical tasks and questions that I wanted to tackle. So Prolog was really natural in that. And then you said you picked up Erlang because Erlang was very Prolog-esque. In fact, it was the first version was written in Prolog and inherited a lot of the syntax. So you picked up Erlang as your next language. What was some of the stuff that you found about Erlang? And you mentioned you also started to write another programming language in Erlang. So what was that kind of path looking like as you picked up Prolog? You played with it for a while, at least enough to get familiar with it and wanted to check out more. So what was the spark that wanted you to continue on and start looking at other languages and maybe even start that look at writing your own? Yeah, so why Erlang? Prolog is a very nice language when it comes to, to logical problems, but Erlang is more for practical things. And for example, WhatsApp is written in Erlang and that's really intriguing. So I thought you can do a lot with this language. You can run things in parallel and you can also use this prologish way of talking about things. For example, you can in Erlang really easy do transformations on math expressions. In Prolog, it's a bit easier, but when you represent them in tuples and lists and all those structures that natural to functional programming, then you can really do transformations like you would do them in Prolog, just with the difference that functions return things and not uh, have several input and output fields in them. And what about Erlang was special that you found that if you're starting to pick up some of these ideas and trying to write a new language that after playing with Prolog and then looking at Erlang that made you feel like you want to start attempting your first language that you're going to write in Erlang? Prolog wasn't that natural to me after I learned Erlang because when you learn functional programming the first time, and I guess it's the same for everybody learning functional programming, you just want to only use this paradigm in future because it's really, really interesting because, you know, Erlang has this way of talking about parallelism and list transformations and all of this so easy that sometimes it's very hard in Prolog. And therefore, Erlang was just easier for me. And then I started developing a programming language because I, I learned several programming language at this time. So beside Erlang, I also looked at Haskell and Lisp and so on. And I guess the first language I wrote also was a Lisp dialect because Lisp is very easy to program or to implement. And so it became an issue then of using these languages. And as you were researching more languages like your Haskell, as you mentioned and mentioned before the call, and then just looking at Lisp and understanding this, that it was a, if I write a Lisp in Erlang, that's going to help me understand Erlang better and what it means to have implemented a Lisp because I've seen a couple of tutorials out there about write your own Lisp. And so that was yes, just, I about that. that was your, we're going to do this and I'm going to get a better understanding of each one and how languages are built then. To be honest, I wouldn't write any programs in Lisp anymore. And at this time I 
didn't really understand Lisp, but I only saw its syntax and it was very, very simple. So I just thought that for my first programming language, the simple syntax would be a, a good idea. And when programming this in Erlang, I also found a few, let's say, bugs in my code that really made me understand Erlang better. So it really helps to understand Erlang, but not to understand Lisp because I was very free in the way I implemented. So it wasn't really a Lisp at the end. It just shared the syntax. And once you get to playing around with some of these languages, you mentioned you played with Haskell and some of these others, and I'm leading us down the path towards how you eventually decided to get to write your own language of Ant language as well. But if you're going on this journey of finding some of these languages and figuring out what appeals to you, you took a look at Haskell. What did you find when you looked at Haskell and what were some of the things that you liked and may not have liked about Haskell that starts to inform your decisions about what you look for in a language? So my first look at Haskell was just like, why can't I write Hello World like I do it in all other languages? Because for those of you who don't know, Haskell it is a very, very special language in a way it deals with side effects. So the things functions does except for returning values. And for example, the Hello World programming in Haskell is not just calling a function returning nil and printing something out. It is calling a function returning an action that does something. So in Haskell, those IO things are first-class objects. And at first, I think like everybody, I, I wasn't able to understand it. And that was my first impression of Haskell. But later on, I understood the math part of it. So I was able to use it in an interactive manner, but I wasn't able to write programs because I haven't got the point of the IO on it. And later on, when I learned about data and classes and instances in Haskell, and then it was really, really funny to write programs like this, even if at first I couldn't imagine to do this. And you've got this appeal of pulling out languages, it would seem, because if you're going, you started with Prolog as something, you ventured into Erlang, you started writing and understanding a little bit enough of a list to try and write your own, but it diverged, as a lot of projects will tend up doing, from what I've heard. You played with Haskell, and then there's also the Antlang, which you've written and are working on, but it's got inspirations from APL and K. So which one of those did you check out first? Was it APL or K that you first got your exposure to? At first, I looked at APL. And the first thing I found about APL is that you can do something like 1, 2, 3, plus 4, 5, 6. And it spits out three numbers. And that was really awesome because you can't do this in Haskell, you can't do this in Prolog, in Lisp, or in Erlang. It was just something new and powerful because what you can do with numbers in APL also works with lists, matrices, and higher dimensional matrices called arrays. So if you can express something on numbers, it just works on higher dimensional things too. And that was really intriguing. However, I wasn't able to run any APL program I have written till this year. And I'm not kidding because the APL implementations that rule are commercial and they cost money. And therefore I looked for an alternative, which is really APL-like, and I found J and K. At first I liked J more of those two possibilities, but later on I found K more intriguing. And what put APL on your radar to begin with? 
that is one of those languages that is out there, people talk about, but what put it on your radar or something that made you decide to want to go and pick it up and learn it and figure out more about how it works? Was it some of the examples that you saw that seemed natural to you in the same way that you said prologue seemed natural to you at first? Or was there something else deeper about APL that put it on your radar and said, I've got to check this out and learn it? People who learned APL either absolutely like it or absolutely hate it. So there's, there is no, I find APL okay. And therefore, there's really much discussion about APL in the internet. And one time I came across this question and I just wondered what is APL because I haven't heard of it till then. So I just looked at APL and I'm really good at maths or I think I'm good at it. And therefore it was very natural to work with matrices and so on in a programming language. That was something new compared to Erling or Haskell. And you look at it and you write these APL programs that you can't actually run because they were all commercial licenses. What kind of stuff, what kind of, what kind of programs were you writing that you were doing this? And I'm assuming you were just opening them up in some sort of text editor and writing them out and compiling by hand. But what kind of stuff were you tackling and trying to work on as you were writing these APL programs without an actual language runtime? It definitely wasn't a 3D game because I had to evaluate everything in my mind. So it just was simple mathematical calculations that I know how to do in other programming languages. But while being the compiler, I learned the language quite well. And I guess this really helps when you have to learn new languages, just try to evaluate in your mind. And however, I found the website called tryapl.org. And it is a an environment where you can enter APL expressions that are small, so only one-liners, and get direct feedback. And when I saw this, I was able to run small programs, but since I haven't APL installed, I wasn't able to run something more complex than mathematical one-liners. And I haven't wrote them down to a text editor because APL also uses some special symbols, which I wasn't even able to write. And now that you say that, I see where that, even in a text editor becomes a problem because I'm thinking like most languages, it's something you can easily access without doing some weird workarounds to try and get those languages. If you don't actually have an APL keyboard or something set up for mapping. So it was a lot of writing these software out by hands and doing it on a piece of paper or a whiteboard or something in that case. At the beginning it was like this, but like I said, I, I discovered J and K later on. And then it was like APL without the stupid characters. So it was really fun for that. But APL is not the only language that uses such characters. Haskell does this too. However, Haskell doesn't force you to use an arrow key, for example. You could also do minus and this comparison symbol. So it would be nice for APL to have those workarounds for this weird symbols too but there are no of them. So I just had to learn J and K. And so you pick up J, which talking on the APL episodes was co-created by Iverson, who was the creator of APL and has a lot of similar stuff and some things that have changed. When you picked up J, how did you find working with J? If you're coming from APL 
and doing it just on paper and then a little bit of one-liners and you're able to pick up the language and look at Jay, what do you find appealed to you about Jay and what were some of the things that were nicer and made it easier to work with other than some of the text characters and ability to get a interpreter that was not free that you looked into Jay and then proceeded to look into K as well. The nice thing about Jay and also the reason why I learned it is because it is really, really easy to get started. There's a lot of online information on their website and they also provide a version for Android mobiles. And I installed this and I really was able to, you know, while I don't know, sitting at the bus station or so, and I could write J code while being there. And I also learned a lot of J while just being not at home. And this is something that other languages don't have. It's, it's not a technical feature, but it's nice for the user experience. And this was the reason why I learned J before K. K does not have these features. And also K is proprietary to KX systems and also costs money. But for K, there's a nice open source implementation too called Kona. And I learned this one after J, which was really, really cool to, to learn because I was able to execute APL programs or more or less APL programs. And it's been a number of years since I've even seen some J code. And how much of that code that you're writing on paper in APL was able to translate to the nice experience of being able to open up your Android phone, type in some code, write it out in the bus station or wherever and have an evaluation on your phone. What was the translation like there? Was it pretty similar or with just a few change in what, how you represent the symbols or what is the difference when you pick up J to K in someone who's a user versus the language designer? Yeah. So except for the funds, that's the way how you express own functions in APL. I really picked the code symbol by symbol and just replaced the not typable symbols of APL by typable J symbols. For example, the multiplication sign becomes an asterisk and the division sign becomes a percent symbol, not a slash. And it was really like replacing some symbols and it ran, or most of it ran. I wasn't able to test it before, so not every code was correct, but most of it. And that was really, really fun. And for K, it was a bit harder because K uses a different data structure in its core. So APL and J are very, very similar, but then K is a bit somewhere else because it, it uses different types of data. And you made an interesting comment there was that you were able to pretty much go symbol by symbol and replace the stuff with a few minor bugs that you had. Do you find that when you played interpreter, most of your software was working as you were expecting it to, and then there were only a few minor bugs of things that you may not have understood properly, or where was the discrepancy of how will you play compiler to once you translated it into J that it did exactly what you thought it would do? How close were you on there and the experience that you had and understanding the language via being the compiler? I just have to say that the compiler in my mind has a better debugger than Jay has because probably Morton mentioned it. When you write something, some bad math in APL or J, what it spits out is just domain error. There's no division by zero error or empty list or head of empty list error. There's just domain error, which means something is wrong, but 
it doesn't point you to the direction where things are wrong. So when you have APL or J code, it is extremely hard to, to debug. Therefore, I just had to rewrite several things in J. So the experience in general was quite good because I was able to find a lot about the language and yeah, read through tutorials and learned a lot by doing so. But it was kind of bad that I wasn't able to debug the, the code because J just simply doesn't have a debugger. And that translation was, for the most part, how you thought it was going to run, even though you weren't running some of these larger programs then. Yes, it was that simple. So nearly anything ran in J perfectly. And that sounds like a great experience and probably just good advice in general. As you said, when your mind is the compiler and learning that language is to try and write stuff out and make those assumptions even without the computer to say, hey, how close am I to compiling first before you actually start typing it in? See, when you do math, you are actually programming, but you probably don't know. I mean, if you write something down on paper, then you evaluate it in your mind and you, at the end, have a result for your math expression. And this is really much how REPLs work or top levels work. And this is also how APL, J, and K work. So... You just have an expression and it evaluates and you get results. So evaluating it in your mind is just natural for those languages because I don't know if someone mentioned it, but APL was actually made for education on Blackboard. So it wasn't a programming language at first. It was a language for communicating to students. And then you take this APL experience. You play with J and actually get something where you're validating and verifying your compiler and you're learning the language and having some symbols. And then you go into K and play with Kona, I believe you said. Kona. At what point did you start getting the itch to start writing Antling being a language that is based off APL and K and inspired by some of these other things that you have learned? What was the transition of after you've looked at all these languages and looked at APL and K via Kona what triggered the, I'm going to write my own and write my own variation? Well, there's a simple problem with APL, J, K, and other of those languages. You cannot pass them. And this really is true. So for languages, the process of evaluation normally is you get the single token, so syntactical entities, then you pass them into some sort of hierarchy or structure, and then you get a result. It evaluates and you get a result. But in APL, there are some expressions which could mean different things depending on some tokens being functions or numbers. For example, if I write down X, Y, Z in APL or J or K, then this could either mean that X is a number, Y is a number, and Z is a number. So basically, we have a three-dimensional vector. But it could also mean that Y is a function and we apply the arguments to the function but it's the same syntax for both of them. So you just can't pass them. And I wanted to create a language that has the features APL has, but I wanted to be statically possible. And I wanted to be also convertible into other languages, which somehow is needed when you write languages these days. And so you take this idea of a parsable language and you come up with Antline. What were some of the things that you made assumption to? You've got some of the outlines 
on your Ant Lane site about associativity and the like, but what were some of those lessons and what inspired those lessons and rules that you're taking when you're wanting to come with, come up with a parsable version of something like an APL? I actually couldn't believe that there are languages which aren't possible. I mean, if you think of a programming language, you think of a language where every syntactical expression has a meaning, but in APL, they sometimes have two or three meanings which is really bad when you don't know the context. So whenever you look into production-ready APL code and you see some expressions, it could be that you don't really understand what they do just because the syntax isn't really expressive in that. So I wanted to create a language where every code has a meaning and only one meaning. And that's like Erlangworks, and Lisp works and Haskell works and Prolog works. So I just found that natural to programming languages. And therefore I wanted it to be a feature of my programming language. And with that, I know that you mentioned on your getting started page, there are things like the associativity and how you don't have operator precedence necessarily, I believe, but you have the precedence based off associativity and that you've got semi-stack based, but not quite workings of the program. So what were some of the decisions there that led you into how you set up some of the expressions and function declarations and coming up with the rules of your syntax? What were some of those inspirations that you took? When you talk of stack-based, it would be a very, very left-to-right manner. And it's kind of the reverse. So in Antlang, expressions evaluate from right to left, however you read them from left to right. And it's not really stack-based. It's more like, you know, you can see parsers written in Haskell, and then you understand that it's a really recursive process of parsing the language. So you just take the, the first element and the second element of the tokens and then everything to the right of that is just the right argument of the function. And this is re really easy to pass. Therefore, I use this syntax and the other syntactical entities like functions called defunds or reduction are all from K and some others are from APL. And as you write these languages and look at this, if I look at the quick start guide, you mentioned Haskell and the inspiration. And it says you've got a installation of Haskell as part of the setup. Does that mean you took Haskell to write Antling and the compiler for Antling is a Haskell program? Not the compiler, but the interpreter of Antling exists in Haskell. And even if that's the oldest implementation of Antling, it is the most used, which kind of is bad because there are better implementations now. But what I like about Haskell is the thing called happy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but HAPI allows you to parse textual data into complex structures and parsing textual data is what, what every programming language does. So when you write a compiler or interpreter, it doesn't matter, then you have the step of parsing, which just means building a tree of organizing the expression. And Haskell has the tool HAPI for this. And yeah, I have used HAPI because it's the simplest tool out there for doing this task. So 
that's why I picked Haskell for this task. Okay. And one of the reasons I ask is because I've also seen some tweets about you working and making a Java platform thing, hitting a few stumbling blocks, but it's still on your list. And wasn't sure what that was looking like for having the up and running and getting started and the different platforms you're able, you're hoping to target for Antling. Antling is a language which is very, very easy to implement. For example, I wrote an implementation in Perl 6 in about three days. So it's really not much work to write Antling interpreters or compilers. And therefore, for me, it's very, very easy to ship to other platforms. And currently, I'm not programming something for the JVM, but I know someone who programs an Antling IDE in Java FX, so on the JVM 8. So there are currently Java is in use in Antling software, the organization, and it is used for doing an IDE and it works in the way that it requests some data from an Erlang server actually running Antling. And I would like to dig in a little bit deeper into Antling. So we've kind of covered the inspiration and some of the lessons taken When you look at Antling and you've got your view of what you want Antling to be, what do you see Antling being used for and being the domain that you would encourage people to pick Antling up and give it a shot for? And maybe those domains that you would not recommend Antling for, as you mentioned, you probably weren't going to be doing three-dimensional computations and visualizations and APL. Where do you see the future of Antling being as the goal for developing Antling? So from syntax, Antling is a very short language. So you can express your ideas easily. And this is one of the attributes that prototyping languages should have. So whenever you build complex systems, complex programs, and you just have no idea how to implement them in Erlang or Haskell, it helps starting with Antlang, and I guess many companies use functional languages in that way. You don't see any, I don't know, game written in Clojure or so, but you see prototypes of games written in Clojure, and this really is where you can use Antlang too. So you should use Antlang for exploring ideas and developing algorithms, but I wouldn't recommend using Antlang for a complex software system. And that makes sense, and I didn't know if just based off even having some of these be interpreters, how much of that was Antling is a language on its own or Antling becomes a DSL inside of your program that you express part of it in Antling to do some stuff and then you're still taking advantage of having that part be interpreted and run and used as well. But if it's a prototyping language... I can see where that value becomes to have a nice, simple syntax, straightforward to prove out expressivity and get some initial ideas down on paper. I haven't seen Antlang in use as a domain-specific language in, in applications. So, you know, there are those DSLs for expressing some certain parts of your system. But I said how easy it is to implement Antlang. So if someone develops a big system and just isn't able to write some parts in, I don't know, Java or C, then perhaps it would help to just write a simple Antlang interpreter that would 
run enough Antlink code to do this task in Antlink. And writing Antlink interpreters is really, really easy. And that's why you can use Antlink as an embedded language in Perl, for example. So there's a library that adds an operator, an Antlink evaluation operator to the Perl language, which really lets you write part of your system in Antlink. But I haven't seen this in use. And that still seems valuable in the fact that it helps you get the ideas. It helps you coalesce them, get them out of your head and down and start to formulate in the same way that people talk about just writing something down, thinking their way through the problem is the first step of figuring out what you're actually trying to solve. And having a very basic syntax language will get you that and be able to start letting you think the problem through. So as you start working on Antlang, you mentioned someone's got a plugin for the IDE that helps to parse Antlang and show Antlang syntax. What else is out there around Antlang? And then to follow on with that is, where do you see Antlang driving to in the future? So I, I see people write software not in Antlang, but for Antlang, which is really great. And I see the language used in perhaps education or so, because because it has this simple syntax and this small syntax and short code, it is a good language for people who just want to, to learn new algorithms. So I guess Antlang has a great future in education in future. And is there anything with Antlang that you see that Antlang is missing that you're looking to add to the language? Or in your perspective, does Antlang feel like a pretty solid, solidified language, and the simplicity is part of the appeal to what it is, and then the power comes from the ability to apply that simplicity in a bunch of different cases. When you have a language with very, very few features, you need lots of workarounds for several tasks. So I'm always trying to add new things to Antlang, but I'm really, I keep track of what I'm adding and what not. So I just don't want to add too much to the language. This would make it very big and hard to implement then. But I I often, some symbols come in mind to me and I just think, okay, they definitely have to be in Antling. And for example, I'm currently thinking of two special variables for indexing into the first argument of a function because that's a really common task in Antling. So it is not a, a finished language, but it can do a lot of things. And so it becomes more of providing extra functions and symbols, in that case, that provide the extensibility of the language, as opposed to the syntax and main core features of the language are done, and you're just looking at how to find the right abstractions for the common problems that people are hitting then. In functional programming in general, we often think of some useful abstractions and Erlang does this more or less and Haskell does it well more and in Erlang there are very few abstractions which somehow is a problem because you know abstractions just make your code more readable and with Antlang I want to go in the in the Haskell direction and I want to to make more things implicit or shorter. So is there anything about Antling that we haven't 
covered. I know there's not a whole lot to it, and I'm afraid I'm underselling that by talking about how simple the language is by just looking at the site and looking at the documentation for the quick start guide and the like. So what haven't we covered about Antling that you think we need to make mention to and highlight some of the power of? Well, I guess we focused a lot on the APL part, but I really want to talk a bit about K and how K and Antling are related, I guess. This would be nice to cover. Feel free to cover that because at a certain point, without looking at K, to my perspective, I wasn't sure if a lot of those languages were similar enough that that inspiration was similar, that the inspiration was along the same lines. But if there's a difference in the inspiration between K, then yeah, I'd love to dig in to see A, a little bit more about K and how that fit into the inspiration of Antling. Yeah, so first of all, let me just introduce K briefly. It is a language developed by Arthur Whitney, and it is very, very um, short. It is even shorter than Antling, but it overloads expressions a lot. So, for example, the bang symbol in K can mean three different things. It can mean enumerate, it can also mean modular or reminder, and it can mean, I guess, rotate. And I think those three tasks aren't even related in any way. So it's just bad practice to overload all of them into one single operator. Therefore, I just want to, to use different symbols for them in Antling and to express things more with words. For example, in Antling, many comparison functions are expressed just using words. And so what else besides seeing the aspect of not liking how K seems to conflate some operators into a bunch of disparate meetings did you pull out of Antling? Was it just seeing some of that stuff about K that you didn't like, or was there other inspirations from K that you did like that you wanted to make sure you folded into the language? At the beginning of Antling, it really was a more concise version of K. I really took a whole lot of it from K, like most of the syntax. But what I don't like in K is that it differs very much between lists and scalars. So when you have a list of a single item, so just, you know, list of one, then it should mean in array languages, this should mean something like just having a one. So lists of one item should be just this item representing itself. And in K, this is not the case because, for example, the bank symbol means reminder when it gets applied to scalars. But when you apply it to a list, even if the list only contains one element, it does mean com something completely different. And this is something which perhaps is just, you know, bad to have in a language. So, so I wanted to replace those bad parts of K and keep the good stuff, which is pretty much everything, except for those, those few issues. And so what else haven't we covered that is part of the sales pitch of why Antling? You mentioned it's a small, simple language, easy to get started, minimal syntax, minimal stuff to understand, great for prototyping. What else is there about Antling that we haven't touched on that you think would cause people to say, hey, there's something here and pick this up? If you've talked about, if you've mentioned people are going out and picking this up and writing tooling for it and tooling in it, what else is there 
that we haven't necessarily done a good job covering. Okay. So I guess this really is what people like the most about Endlang. There isn't that much to it. And tools get more and more complex. For example, if you know Visual Studio, the IDE, it is perhaps the most complex program I have installed. And this isn't necessary. I mean, there are simpler programs that can do pretty much the same. And Antlang is a simple and small tool, which is really on point. And what people like the most about it is that you can combine expressions into a single expression. For example, when you need multiple lines of Erlang to create a module and export functions and then start typing in two-line factorial function, for example, it would only take one single line in Antlang and it would run in the shell and in scripts. So it really is a small language and this also is what people like the most about it. And this is why people write tools for it, to keep the small core but make the ecosystem bigger. And it looks like it has some interesting potential, which is why I wanted to get you on and talking about this as well as giving some of the background and context for how you came up with this and digging a little bit into the inspiration of APL and K and establishing a little more context around those. And so I want to make sure we were able to give you the appropriate chance to sell the idea and cause people to go look at the site because there's some interesting ideas there. And I wanted to make sure we appropriately covered it. Yes, so if someone has the question, why Antling? There's just a simple answer to it. Why not? I mean, you can go to the website for free and you can try it without any any cost. And I guess it's also a benefit over APL where you have to buy a good APL system. And people trying Antling either love it or hate it. And it's quite the same with APL. So... I often hear people saying, wow, Antlang is great and it's an awesome language and they find it pretty interesting. So if you want to, you can just, you know, look on GitHub, search for Antlang and you should find several repos containing either documentation or code written in Antlang. So for everybody listening who wants to, to learn or even look at this language, you can just search in GitHub for it. And so you mentioned the different compilation and interpreters that are out there. What other stuff around Antling is out there for people to check out that might be worth their interest? You mentioned a couple of NIDE interpreters or at least syntax highlighters and parsers. What other stuff around Antling is out there for people to go look at and get more in depth with? So for the Unix peoples using Perl, they can really try the Antlang embedded system in Perl. So you can run Antling expressions and mix them with Perl. And for guys coming from the functional world, Antling has several tools for functional programming. So there are libraries out there supporting more complex higher order functions and so on. And I guess if I have to name something which would be interesting for most people, it probably is just look at the source code of an Antling implementation. Because Really, if you look at the source code of it, you understand how small it is. And there are implementations written in Erlang. It's just when you search for Antling, I guess the Erlang implementation is the first match. And there's also one written in Perl and so on. So just read it in your favorite language and then you would probably like it. You mentioned finding Antling on GitHub. And 
if they search for it, and I'll include links to it on the show notes. But what are some other resources for ant laying? And then where can people find more about what's going on with you and keep up to date with what's going on in your world and in ant laying's world? Yeah, ant laying is also at at Twitter. I guess you include the link. And there's also an Antling YouTube tutorial. It's German, but it doesn't matter because I included subtitles on pretty much every episode. And I was really happy when I saw this, that someone sat down and made a tutorial about Antling. And this is definitely a good resource to check out, even if you have to read the, the subtitles. So the YouTube videos just, if you look in YouTube or there's also something on Rosetta code, I guess, then you would find Antling there also. And I'll get all those included in the show notes and make sure we can have the links so people can go back and find it out, check out more, watch the tutorials, which I didn't even know existed. So gives people an opportunity to go back and find it. And I'll make sure to get those links gathered in the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Anthony, for taking your time to join me today. It was interesting to hear about the background and inspiration for Antling. And I, had checked it out a couple times on and off just looking at the website, but it's interesting to get a better experience and understanding of the decisions that came in with it and your background as to why you actually wanted to prompt and create this language and what you found about your journey through and in deciding to come up with a language and have that language be ailing and those inspirations and lessons taken. So thank you for taking your time. I know we had some trouble getting this call set up and coordinated to start with. Yeah. But thanks for taking your time and joining me today and getting this call done. Okay. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.